0: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie. And this morning, it is so great to welcome back Professor Ananis Chowdhury, Auckland University Professor of Experimental Economics and the writer of the book Nudged into Lockdown, Behavioural Economic Uncertainty and COVID-19. Good morning, Ananis. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Marie, for having me.
0: I know. I just as we got started, I said to you, "I can't believe it's six months since we had you on RCR." Where's that time gone? It's just that's blind. right.
1: No, I, I think I was on Paul Brennan uh, more recently because I wrote this uh, article about, you know, how claims that New Zealand saved twenty thousand lives is it's
0: right. kind of
1: meaningless. So I think I think I was on Paul. Yes. Yeah.
0: But And, and of course, the best news about all of that is if anyone wants to look up those interviews with the new app now, it's easy peasy. So, yeah, it's really good. So I wanted to get you on because I am a keen follower of the Bassett, Brash and Hyde blog. And I came across your article published November 2nd. And this is a paragraph from the article. Uh, It's entitled Labour Stuffed Up. That's why they lost a deal with it. In the article you cite, Labour lost because the average punter on the street was sick and tired of the incompetence, the lies, the hypocrisy and the incessant identity politics. They lost because our police were perfectly happy to beat up on the protesters in Wellington, but are unable to protect a women's rights activist in the middle of Albert Park or store owners being ram-raided over and over. Labour lost because we shut our own citizens out of the country and let small businesses go to ruin in the guise of saving lives. And then they blamed those businesses for not being resilient enough. You didn't hold back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I mean, because the reason I wrote that was, I'm sure you've noticed this. So I I, I saw this uh, article in the Herald by Rob Campbell, who, it's among other things, is the Chancellor of uh, Auckland University of Technology, and and he said something along the lines of this election was bought and bought cheaply. Fine. Then um, I read something by David Williams in Newsroom talking about the Taxpayers Union and sh- and shadowy figures and funds, and there was a there was a lot of others. I'm sure I you know, there are many others. So, so, the reason I, I felt compelled to write that was because, first of all, when Donald Trump said the election was stolen, we, of course, you know, we were aghast, right? Mm. And that election wasn't stolen. You know, many of Trump's uh, lawyers have now pled guilty, as you as you know, in you know, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesbro. Anyway, but then it came to our election, and all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> People were saying the same things that we found so outrageous before. And I wanted to say that, you know, it it wasn't that some people gave, sure, some rich folks gave money to National Act, but that those things we know, those things don't sway elections as much as people think they do.
0: No, And what so really, why do you think Labour failed so spectacularly to read the room on this?
1: Well, I, I don't know the inside workings, but my um this is this is what I I have talked about. So I think in 2017, Labour didn't expect to win that election. And so they had they started with a very thin talent pool. And then of course they, you know, got the keys to the castle. And they were well on their way to losing in 2020 before COVID hit. And then once COVID hit and Jacinda Ardern, you know, with the first lockdown, she became very popular. That they they kind of became a one trick pony, I thought. Mm. So all of a sudden we were this team of 5 million, you know, that could show the rest of the world. an enormous amount of hubris involved the adulation went to their head and i think partly and i I could be wrong on this so partly also what happened was once they brought in the vaccine mandates it, it just they just kept doubling down and i think with the vaccine mandates they lost a lot of the Maori and Pacifica vote, I think, or support. And then to regain that, they started things like, you know, breaking up the health system into Te and the Maori Health Authority, which was, I think, by all accounts has been a failure and that certainly wouldn't or shouldn't have been a priority at that time who breaks up the health system? Already, the health system is under under pressure, and now you're ramming through some of these. So I think they were kind of lost in their own bubble, that and completely failed to. I mean, think about it, right? Uh, Jacinda Ardern could barely came and visited her own constituency in Mount Albert during the lockdowns, and I thought, I think, I guess, eventually they thought that somehow or the other, you know, they would get by.
0: Mm. Uh, because they they got spanked in Auckland at this election.
1: They lost massively in Auckland, yes. I mean, they lost they lost massively. I mean, think about it. Jacinda Ardern won Mount Albert by 20,000 votes and Helen White is clinging on to a 20-foot margin.
0: Yeah, and Mount Roscoe too. And I mean, I know some are blaming poor Pacifica voter turnout. Well, you know, they may not necessarily vote against labor, but they can certainly abstain, can't
1: they? Correct, correct, correct. So I'm I'm certainly not a huge expert on on voting patterns and things, but it was obvious, as I said, you know, different people had different grievances. Not everybody had the same sort of grievances, but through our day-to-day lived experiences, I think everybody felt something has gone wrong drastically with the country. As I mentioned earlier, I've lived here for 20 years now and I have two daughters were born here. I don't think I've ever seen this amount of kind of anxiousness and angst and social division uh, that we had before. I mean, we we never had this before, Mm. right? I mean, you may have liked Helen Clark or disliked her, you may have liked uh, John Key or Bill English or disliked them but this visceral sense that I got against kind of the, some of the Labour Party politicians hmm. there was a lot of condescension also I, I felt I felt, you know, as I wrote there.
0: Hmm. You, well you write it, your following paragraph then says Labour lost because they engineered a transfer of wealth from the blue collar to the white collar, from the young to the elderly from the mom and pop grass grocery stores to the big supermarket chains. And that was certainly something I observed. I almost feel like, because I identified with you, like I lived in Mount Talbot in, in, right, in that electorate right. for a time. So I've, I voted for Helen Clark. She used to come into my place of work. Her superpower, if she had one, is she had an elephantine memory and she could memorise people, contexts and names. So when I ran into her many years later, once I'd moved down here, ran into her at the airport in that final election campaign before she lost to John Key. And she stopped, she looked me straight in the eye and she knew exactly who I was, how are you? Now, that is a skill, and and that was something that she transferred into, you know, huge popularity. I feel like Labour is having an identity crisis. They've kind of lost themselves. They've lost who they were at that time. You know, the party of Helen Clark completely forgot who they were under Jacinda Ardern.
1: Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, I mean, in many ways. So, so some of this is so kind of contradictory and counterintuitive. So today we are talking on and on. Or towards the end, Labour was talking on and on about the grocery market and you know how we have these two chains and they're so powerful. We need a grocery commission. But did we really need to shut down the local butchers and local greengrocers? Why? Why did we do that? But if you said those things you were a granny killer and you were, you know, COVID skeptic. Why did we have to do that? I mean, just to put this in, I mean, I'm sure you know this, right? So, so as I travel the world now, one thing I realize is that the vast majority of countries just don't understand how stringent our level four lockdowns were, because most of the countries had nothing like that, even at the height of their lockdowns, uh, you know, Take out places where open because the risk is so minimal that shutting down these businesses and then saying, oh, you're not resilient. How, how would they be resilient? That's by definition a small business, is by definition a small business, right? They are not going to have enormous amounts of savings to fall back on.
0: And also they kicked the can down the road, having been, like I am a business owner, so in that period of time, they kicked the can down the road because I have to admit the freeness in which they distributed funds to those who were business owners to keep wages going and the like, and the lack of oversight on that, I found quite disturbing, and I keep saying to my husband, I said, this is this has got to bite someone in the ass somewhere along the line financially. You can't shell out hundreds of millions of dollars and not have that check will bounce at some point. So economically, what were could you see that right from the get-go, that there was going to be choppy waters ahead with what they were doing?
1: Yeah, so I I I wrote a column, I think December of 2020, maybe there thereabouts, I said this amount of money printing is going to come back and hurt us badly because there is no no way see that's exactly so i was recently at a conference where um david stockman david stockman used to be uh, ronald reagan's director of office of management and budget he talked about it but he talked about it in the u.s context right and he said that one reason why people were not up in arms was because there's so much money being thrown at them right So he talks about, uh, in the United States, some $6 trillion were were kind of pushed out in 12 months. But here's the other issue, right? The other issue is that a lot of this actually went to kind of the top tier, right? So I I talked about this. So what did we do, right? So we shut the economy down, creating essentially engineering bit of recession. And then to protect us from that, we printed enormous amounts of money to keep interest rates low, right? But as a result of that, if you look back, if you look back all the way to the start of the pandemic, there was a brief period in March, April 2020, when the share market and the housing market kind of briefly tanked, but then they took off massively, right? and in the united states for instance people you know most of us like the what we call the the laptop class right the people the white collar workers who didn't lose their jobs who could work comfortably from their homes we then kind of leveraged the equity in our properties you know houses and we invested them this was a big uh, time for groups like Robin Hood in the U.S. or Sharesies in New Zealand. So we put the money into share markets and you know, we put the money into, into property and things like that. And that generated a massive housing and share market bubble. And the reason I say this is because this acted actively against people who didn't own, say, property, Right. And one of the things that I also uh, think now is that our political representation is also quite lopsided now, in the sense that the elderly—now you can define elderly as you know people who are generally older—they own a lot of wealth in the form of property, right? And so our political class has also come to represent their views a lot more than the views of the of the typical blue collar and this is where you mentioned this point right this is where I found it surprising how much labor has drifted away from representing the the views of the blue collar workers and they have essentially turned themselves into a party of kind of this culture wars on identity and you know Right, trans rights and things like that. But that's not, I'm not saying that's not important or useful, but they have essentially become a party of of those values rather than looking out for the blue-collar workers. Right. I mean, I always say this. So I I at the time the New York Times wrote an article saying, Oh, stay safe, get your get your food delivered. <laughs> And <laughs> I felt like what the hell? Who is delivering your food? What about those people? Yeah. Right? What about the supermarket workers and the janitors and the cleaners and the frontline workers? They they have to be out there. And then, you know, people like me who could do my lectures on Zoom, we were, you know, like, yes, locked out. It was it was it was bizarre.
0: No, it was truly bizarre, and and it is interesting that when you see some of the inquiries, like particularly they have one currently going on in the UK, where they are now finally examining these things and being critical. Do you have confidence that here in New Zealand, with the current setup of the inquiry that is going on at the moment, will that actually give us any answers in terms of preventing some of the mistakes made, or have they deliberately? set the framework in order to give themselves a pat on the back and, oh, yeah, we didn't quite do that right, but that's, you know, never mind.
1: I'm <laughs> I, I, I supposed to be, uh, I take part in a workshop on Friday, uh, so I I don't know, I probably should be circumspect. I'm not terribly optimistic given the terms of the inquiry and, and the, I, I'm not terribly optimistic that there'll be a lot of soul searching uh, over this, uh, but but maybe maybe I'll be proved incorrect. So let me, just, let me just backtrack for a minute. So one of the things that happened, and I'm sure you understand this, is alongside the kind of the social and psychological, maybe the economic impact, we have had a massive overreach of government policy, and I think a significant amount of damage to our democratic institutions, right? To take one example, we passed the Public Health Response Act under urgency, which allows police warrantless entry into homes to enforce social distancing protocols. Now, I think that law has been allowed to lapse, but we did allow this. This is considered a fairly fundamental check and balance in a democracy that police cannot enter your home without due cause or probable cause, right? then we passed standing order 55 of parliament which allows the prime minister to to prorogue or suspend parliament at the at the suggestion of the director general of health but the director general of health reports the prime minister this is again considered a fairly fundamental check and balance now when the prime minister goes to the governor general or when the uk prime minister goes to the to the king and says you know prorogue parliament it's not as if they're going to say no we won't, but at least it provides a check, especially because in New Zealand, we don't have an upper house and things like that. So we have caused an enormous amount of damage and more fundamentally kind of trust in our institutions, I think.
0: Well, you just had to look back at the law that was rushed through at the end of 2021 in order to enact the digital passport system. Correct. And you know, Correct. when you have what two leading law professors in Amnesty International calling New Zealand, the New Zealand government out on their lack of due process for its citizens, you know, something's a bit stinky in the state of Denmark, isn't it?
1: Correct. So the first nine days of lockdown was was found to be unlawful. We had to we had to amend the law. Uh, MIQ partially unlawful. Vaccine mandates partially unlawful. The prevention of citizens from returning their to con- their country, certainly uh, a contravention of international law. So all of those things happened and very few people protested. Everybody kind of said, eh, okay, you know again, I mean I, I, I say this and uh, you know, people kind of look at me askance. I said, you know Donald Trump separated families at the border and we were all outraged. rightfully so. But then Jacinda Ardern did the same thing essentially, and we said, Ah, okay. Because Mm -hmm. many families were separate. I mean, I'm sure you know of people whose parents died, they couldn't go, or you know, things along those lines. These were major violations, and we collectively kind of shrugged, our intellectuals collectively kind of shrugged and said, Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Because you know, because lives were saved, and in fact, lives were not really being saved, you know. But I think been... that that
0: actually then led to this, the size of the protest in Correct. Wellington. Correct. And Correct. I know from our perspective, the day she announced um, the vaccine mandates, after having only 10 days prior, uh, I think it was Chris Hipkins and both herself reiterated that that would not take place.
1: Correct. And Correct. to do
0: a complete 180 Correct. degree pivot. Correct. I mean, I know I, I was devastated. I've talked about this before on another um, show that I have with a friend here. And I mean, I broke down and cried. I walked in uh, because I knew what that, that would mean for us and our family and the business that we had. I simply could not believe in this country that that could be done. And more so, what I couldn't believe is how people just went, Meh, okay, <laughs> and, and see, barely said anything about it. it,
1: it so This is why I talked about the kind of lies and the hypocrisy, because think about this for a minute. And plus, again, I found it difficult that people wouldn't on. Un- wouldn't kind of pay attention to this. So whether you agree or not, New Zealand does not mandate any vaccines. New Zealand doesn't have a vaccine mandate for measles, mumps, most other countries of the world mandate these things, right? So when you mandate other deadly diseases and you mandate COVID, which is not a particularly deadly disease because in recovery rates are very high for COVID, You could possibly justify that saying, okay, we mandate other things. But when you don't mandate things like measles vaccines, which kills a lot of children, to say that we're going to mandate a COVID vaccine is deeply problematic, right? Second of all, and I don't need to tell you this, when you have a Bill of Rights which says that people have the right to refuse medical treatment and you mandate a vaccine, you can possibly square that circle, but you have to do something you can just say, oh, we are doing this. And I think that's partly, this is another thing we discussed before, that New Zealand didn't seem to have any constitutional protections against this kind of overreach. Mm. Now, once again, I could certainly see, you know, people saying, yes, this is okay, or this is not okay. But there had to be some legal and philosophical justification which just wasn't provided to us. And we were told, you know, they're doing this, You fall in line. If you're not, then you are, again, you're a granny killer. You're a skeptic. And and then, of course, um, S-19 of the Bill of Rights (laughs) says that you have the right not to be discriminated against. I could not understand how that could square with this thing which said that if you were not vaccinated, you would be discriminated against, right? And there's this famous clip of Jacinda Ardern, you know, Derek Cheng of New Zealand Herald asked her that it seems like you're creating a segregated society. And she said, yep, yep, that's exactly what it is. I don't know, maybe she just didn't have any understanding of what it was that she was saying. And, and I, I think I've met Jacinda Ardern many times and I think she's a nice person. But not a particularly reflective or deliberative person, I think. And because of that, it was very easy for her. I, I don't know where she was getting her advice from. Maybe these, you know, these these medical experts. But these things could not coexist together. You could not have a law or or a bill of rights which protects you against discrimination and discrimination you could not you could again as i'm saying you know there are ways countries do square some of these circles but you have to have some you know maybe a legal ethical philosophical arguments Mm. at least a back and forth that just wasn't wasn't the case for us these things were brought in and We had to fall in line or not, right? Similarly, you know, again, I've written about this. Jacinda Ardern, Chris Hopkins, Labor left people on progressives. And I kind of consider myself one of those. We were all in favor, we were very supportive of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, right? That was the middle of the pandemic, right? We said, yes, justified, this is important. In the past, we have we have supported things like Occupy Wall Street. We have always supported various protests. But then our own citizens showed up, and all of a sudden, they were, what was it, rivers of, they brought rivers of filth. How can that be? I mean, people really aren't that stupid. I mean, many, many are, <laughs> but...
0: Well, so this show is primarily, I focus a lot on critical social justice and Great. the ideologies around that, right? And I mean, let's face it, if you once you scratch the surface of it and you start unpicking it, it is full of hypocrisies. It's built on a house of hypocrisy. Correct. So, and that was the one thing I thought that I saw is that as a country, we've always had a tremendous amount of trust in our government. Right. And our government has always stood by its citizens and we punched above our weight in terms of lack of corruption and making sure that we do the right thing. And so when we had this call to arms with the team of 5 million, that's where I think her ideological roots started to show because we had the strong social contract within its citizenry And as time wore on, I mean, I'm certainly seeing it now. I saw straight through it right from the get-go only because – I was aware of the social justice element. At the beginning I started seeing it at around that 2016, 2017 mark with the election of Donald Trump. And that, and it was quite funny. You mentioned stolen elections before. We well, See, remember the Democrats were very open about that election being stolen from them with Donald Trump with the use of Cambridge Analytica. Great. So this is nothing new, but the 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 whole ideological to and fro started at that time. So when I started to see once the coalition sort of was settled and you could sort of see little inklings of it through 2017 to 2020, once the pandemic rolled out, I literally said to my husband, I said, oh my gosh, she is rolling out critical social justice in a COVID Trojan horse because you could see the elements of that being pushed through, as you said, the allowing of BLM protests at the height of lockdown. And yet when other um, people like Advanced New Zealand and the like would do anti-lockdown protests, they were shut down and arrested and would go up to court, but no one would intervene with the BLM protest.
1: You have to correct. So I've I've actually talked a lot about this. So so one of the chapters in my book is about trust. And I say that this was, This whole idea of, you know, MIQ and that we had to imprison people essentially, this is just not right for New Zealand. Because I I I was on radio, uh, things and I said, let people go home and then say that look, you know, we expect you to follow these rules. If you don't, we might prosecute you. This is a much more efficacious approach for a country like New Zealand because we are a very high trust society and and the problem is that some of the people tried to break out mostly because they were being imprisoned and and I I said think about this one person tried to break out that was big news but thousands and thousands of people came back and they all followed the rule no one thought that was novel right similarly I've said this in in elsewhere that according to our world in data by sort of 2022, middle of 2022, New Zealand had achieved about 85%, 83% double vaccination. Denmark, another country of 5 million people, which had no vaccine mandates, which essentially appealed to people, had achieved slightly better, about 85% double vaccination, right? So my point was that was it really worth the amount of social division we created? And I even wrote uh, an, an article in the BFD about the fact that I thought the judges were getting it wrong. The judges were applying a wrong lens. They seemed to believe that this supposed public health argument outweighed everything else without realizing that when i lose my job there's a huge cost to me and those costs need to be factored in especially given the kind of the demographic age profile of COVID. that people under the age of 50 let's say who did not have any comorbidities were not really at very high risk of dying etc so you you were you had to it wasn't that you were you had to apply this on a population basis you had to allow for this age profile and the judges were ignoring a lot of that and and some of this I've forgotten I mean even not saying this well but I I wrote about a lot of these things the other thing that you mentioned I think it's and this is also something I've written about and work, I'm working on this when he said critical social justice it's this idea For a long time, and this is particularly people in the media, people in academia, we talk about kind of right-wing authoritarianism, right? That this is a right-wing characteristic. But that's not true. There is a very strong left-wing counterpart to this.
0: Which is very totalitarian
1: which is very totalitarian. And the reason why we talk about this to some extent, there's a bit of history here, is that a lot of this comes from the work of a psychologist, sociologist called Theodore Adorno, who developed something called the F scale or the fascism scale, because he was trying to understand, you know, Nazi Germany. But even back then, a gentleman, a a psychologist called Edward Schills at the University of Chicago pointed out, he said, look, you know, Stalin, people like Stalin are as totalitarian as say Hitler, and so just to say that this kind of authoritarianism is a purely right-wing phenomenon is not right. And so Jacinda Ardern, who you know has been part of the Youth Socialist League for a long time, that that the left-wing is, and this this is not just cancel culture. This is this is a very totalitarian mindset that if you don't buy my arguments, then you are the enemy.
0: Mm. And one so, of the things that they employ is what I call horizontal policing within the populace. And they deployed that so well. They started by getting everybody brought into the team first. Correct. So we were all on the team of five million. And once we were on the team of five million, there would be things that they would introduce. And she, how often did she say, we're operating now on a high trust model? And then they don't talk to your neighbours and creating the snitch line. And so they were fostering and enabling and encouraging the population to police themselves. I was aghast when that happened because I'm thinking, I mean, I'm I'm in my fifties, so I'm old enough to have read and, as a child, had heard about Eastern Bloc countries. We have friends from Eastern Bloc countries. They were apoplectic about this. They could, they were like, they could not believe that in 2020, New Zealand, they were reliving things that they'd lived in the 1960s and 1970s Eastern Bloc. They were stunned. Yes,
1: yeah, so I, I again, yeah, I I I don't know. I mean. Um maybe we are over reading this or but you know um in, in the communist regimes you had the komsomol the young communists right and and they were asked to essentially daub in their own parents if they had anti-communist thoughts so it's, we had something similar to that right so your neighbor is doing something you know report them to the police and things i don't know i mean I, At the one hand, I kind of think, okay, maybe it wasn't as bad (laughs) and we are, you know, kind of creating conspiracies where they may not exist. But it was hard to.
0: I think it just showed up the um, malleability of the psyche of, of a population and that it actually doesn't take much to nudge a population in one direction or another if the will is there and and the levers that need to be pulled. And I Because I don't necessarily believe there is a greater conspiracy out there. I have correct. Great correct. disagreements with my husband over this. Correct, correct. But what correct. I think Matthias Desmet actually summed it up beautifully in his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, correct. where he actually just showed the the levers and mechanisms that can be pulled. Uh, how it actually surprisingly easy this a population to do what it is that you need them to correct, do it.
1: correct correct I and i found it astounding who, which politician in his or her right mind in this time says that we will act as your single source of truth Th- that was kind of mind blowing that somebody would actually say that and expect people to kind of abide and and we did we kind of looked at the government as you know as the source of truth when and that's the other strange thing right i mean for a long time, progressives were kind of anti-establishment. We we questioned authority. <laughs> you know, that was kind of our you know, thing back in the, whatever, 60s, etc. You know, a lot of it was about questioning authority. All of a sudden, we were not questioning authority. And, and that's another thing I've written over and over again about our media. And I said that, look, you need to understand that the media's role should primarily be one of opposition. Right? The government has many ways of getting their message out. You don't have to play along with them. Your role should be primarily to say, I don't believe you.
0: Mm-hmm. But they <laughs> that, had 55 you know, million reasons that's exactly, to do that. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. And then we came to understand that. But it was, it was also quite quite strange to see how compliant the media was and, and their refusal to ask any hard questions,
0: so did you see Michael Baker's was in the press again recently reminding us about this, telling us about this fifth wave that is now coming through and encouraging for boosters. And it's been quite, I've been really interested in looking at the reaction of what I call most sort of normal people, people in the middle who just go along to get along. They want to get back to work and try and rebuild businesses and and, uh, communities and do all of that sort of stuff. For them, COVID is in the rear view mirror. So then to have this back out in the news cycle, I don't think it got the splash that our Michael was kind of hoping it might.
1: No, it didn't. But equally, it seems that uh, it seems very strange, right? So because, you know, in the United States and Northern Hemisphere, they're saying this and they're heading into their winter. And here we are saying it when we are heading into our summer. Professor Baker seems really determined to hang on to this COVID (laughs) claim to fame. And... uh, I'm guessing there's I think there's a lot of public money involved in various grants and things along these lines. But I do want to say one thing on this for people who are listening. So I think people should should ignore uh, Professor Baker. I don't know about his other research. I cannot speak to that, but what I can say is that I have read some of his writings on COVID and this is not very well done research. And I also wrote this one column where Professor Baker said that we saved 20,000 lives. I pointed out why that's essentially inaccurate and meaningless. So I think people who really are worried should do the following, right? They should go to their their GPs and say, you know, they ask, what should I do, right? But more importantly, please don't stop by asking what I should do. Ask your GP, what are you doing? Are you getting another shot? Are you advising that to your parents? Are you advising that to your children? Are you advising that to your friends and family? Because asking the GP, what should I do is different from asking, what would you do if you were in my shoes? That in involves a very different mindset so for anyone who wants to you know is concerned don't listen to some of the what the experts are saying because some of them may have very strong vested interests don't listen to me but then go to the Mm. gp and ask uh, what would you do if you were in my place Mm. Uh, evidence suggests that that elicits a very different response you know what are you recommending this for your parents etc right that's what people should do don't listen to you know people in the media just go to people who know you best and ask them searching questions yeah. and again you know don't listen to me what do i know i mean i you know I, but, I just i just got into this mostly because you know i was i was embarrassed by the questions that people were not asking
0: well we've got a new government
1: Yes, And
0: what advice, if they came to you and they said, Anash, give us some advice in terms of what you think would be prudent for us to do now moving forward for the next, say, first 100 days or first three years to get New Zealand back on track, as Christopher Luxon would say, to move us away from this COVID economic shadow?
1: So the the problem with this... Is that it's actually not so easy to wipe the slate clean, right? So, this is something I said over and over again that you could not, you cannot take the position that will deal with COVID first and the fallout later. That's just not going to happen. Now that we have this huge cost of living crisis and things along these lines, it's actually not going to be easy put that genie back in the bottle very quickly and i know people think that's would happen but it's not not so easy any anymore so what should the government do i think the first and foremost thing is to convince people about the integrity of our institutions i mean let me give you an example it may not seem like a big thing but the reserve bank of new zealand has nothing to do with climate change right that's not not main mandate that's not their mandate racial justice is not their mandate their mandate is very narrow and that's to deal with monetary policy they should stick to it so i think the first thing again I may be completely biased here, but I think one thing that we have had in the last six years is an extreme politicization of all our institutions. I think the first thing to do would be make sure that our institutions are fair. If there are human rights violations, then we want our Human Rights Commission to speak out on all of those things, not on a selection of those things. right? So I think if we can restore trust in our institutions, it's not not an easy thing to do, but that might go a long way towards convincing people that, look, you know, the, your government is on your side, right?
0: Well, you're essentially saying that the social contract has been irreparably damaged at this, this point, and it needs a bit of TLC, doesn't it? Correct,
1: correct, correct. Now, I think that would be or should be a priority then various other things of course um, i think that creating a separate maori health authority is is a mistake there needs to be in a democratic country there needs to be one health authority for for everyone right i mean that's what a democracy is right a democracy is supposed to watch out for the most vulnerable Right. If you need to have separate rules, separate laws for every you know various different groups, that's not a democracy anymore. Right. Our courts, our laws should work for; they should protect everyone. Some of that, I think, will again, yes. So broadly speaking, I think the social contract that the that the rules and laws are working for everyone uh, needs to be revisited. I think at some point there will have to be a bit of a reckoning. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a column. Again, this is probably not the first. I said that part of the reason why Winston Peters is back in parliament is because he was the only politician who showed up and talked to the protesters. Mm. And the protesters had legitimate grievances. That has to be considered. Uh, we we didn't. I think, I think National and ACT would have picked up some more votes if there had been, you know, even if they would said, look, you know, we should have, we didn't, that was a mistake. I think Mm. that might have taken some of the votes away from New Zealand first and, you know, they wouldn't have to rely on him so much now. They could have formed a government.
0: Um, Well, and that was actually one of the questions I had down here. I mean, you talked about why New Zealand, uh, why Labour lost Right. But who who do you think was actually the big winner of the election? I mean, was it Winston? Was it Te party Māori? Because of course they had a tremendous success by being Correct. able to capitalize on candidacy vote. Correct. whilst Labor Correct. picked up the party vote. So who who do you believe? I Labor think winners?
1: I think I think when New Zealand First was did win a lot of the disenfranchised uh, vote that the vote that. People, instead of voting for someone like Brian Tamaki, etc., they went with New Zealand first. Some of it, some of the dissolution Māori vote went to Te Party Māori. That, mm.
0: Um Which is, which, from my perspective, I find that quite concerning because unlike the days of Tariana Turia and correct. Peter Sharples, they have now become very much a radical activist party and not a party based around you know, a tribal centre in terms of needs. And they're looking, they're drawing on a lot of inspiration, let's put it this way, from uh, ideologies offshore.
1: Yes, I was just going to say that, that this Mori party, of course, is a very different party than the one founded by Peter Sherples and Tariana Turia, where they seem to be very much, much more hung up about kind of identity rather than the economic issues. They, they don't seem to say a whole lot about, some of the economic problems. So yes, so I, if I was in, in charge, I would start by doing some of that. Then you know we need to uh, the the big challenge, and it's not not so easy to know what to do. And I, I have to say that David Seymour is the only person who has harped on this a lot. Is is that our kind of low wages and low productivity? This is something you know we really need to address. That uh, that we are we are kind of falling far behind Australia in in many ways. And if that keeps happening, then we are going to lose a lot of people who will go off to Australia.
0: I have a business, my the day job, which has a retail component, but we have a manufacturing component. Right. And manufacturing has been something that has become very heavily regulated in this right. country. And then that in turn creates a level of cost, which then applies pressure. And then you're in a situation where you've got a workforce that is at the lower end of the, the pay scale. And so you've got to try and get productivity at a level that that's where your profitability is going to to lie and it's become increasingly more difficult and you're not just going to win that by doing well I mean what has it been nearly a 45% increase on the minimum wage over the last six years I mean it's a a dramatic number Mm. and all we're certainly seeing is it's like a it's squeezing uh, from from bottom up and top down in terms of compliance so Where do businesses go in terms of innovation, in terms of productivity, in terms of being able to create that number eight wire mentality that we've always been? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I don't know. These are not questions. I mean, these are not easy to answer questions, but this is certainly something that I think a new government would have to look at. That you know, how do we increase productivity? What are the ways of doing so? And there are no, um, there are no easy answers in some sense. No
0: short answers on that. No short
1: answers. I I, I mean, and if there is, I certainly don't. I don't know.
0: Well, you and I could keep talking, I think, for hours. And I, I, I think in the new year, once we get them established, once they've got their slippers in the in the desk sure, at the Beehive, sure. we will get back together and, and see how things are going. But it has been an absolute joy to talk to you. Oh, i talking you so to much. Thank uh, you. Pro- Professor Anash Chowdhury. This article was November 2nd, Bassett, Brash and Hyde. Where else can people find your writing? What current columns have you got at the moment or about to come out that uh, you'd like so, to hide? So I,
1: um, you can just search... M- uh, Google for my with my name on Anish and I have a web page where I put up all my writings. If people want to read the nudged Into Lockdown book, the book is actually, um, it's relatively expensive in New Zealand, but it's available in public libraries. It's also available as an e-book from various outlets. So they're available on Google Books if people want to read it on ebooks.com. Uh, all of this is available on my website, so people can just do a Google search. And and but again, I I want to say that you know I some of these are my opinions. I may be wrong, <laughs> so so don't take my word for everything. You know, listen to other people.
0: It's good to actually get a different point of view and a different perspective to sort of see where we go. So no, correct. So isn't...
1: I started out by, in my book, and I don't know if this is true, but uh, my, my father, um, he, he passed away in 2019. So my father always used to tell me this story about Rousseau and Voltaire. And I don't know if this story is true or not, but... And the story is that, you know, Voltaire said of Rousseau that, you know, I disagree with every single thing you have to say, but I'll fight to my death for your right to say so. So that's been my kind of guiding motto that that I don't have to agree with you or you don't have to agree with me. But at the end of it, you know, if I provided you with some food for thought and, you know, made you think, look at this in a different way, that's all I'm trying to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, playing devil's advocate in some sense, and rather than falling in line and and advancing a government narrative. And I always say this, that, you know, I will soon, (laughs) after having written much about against the Labour government, I'll very, very soon be writing against the National Act government. In fact, I already have done so. (laughs) One of the, the most recent column in Newsroom, is about the changes to university councils driven through by Stephen Joyce back in 2015. And I said that in you know, some of the problems our universities are facing now, including the huge issues at Massey, is partly because, uh, you know, our vice chancellors don't respond so much to our staff and students anymore because the councils are dominated by political appointees. So that's uh, that's against Stephen well, it, Joyce, so. and as
0: you said before, I mean, part of the role of the media has always been to push back and question. Great, and if they're great. not going to do it, I'm so thrilled that you do, are doing it and continue to do so because I love reading your work. Hey, look, it has been such a joy.
1: As I said, thank you so much, Murray. Thank you. You're it's most my welcome. pleasure.
0: Professor Anna Stroudry, Auckland University Professor of Experimental Economics. Don't disappear here on Reality Check Radio with Counterculture. There is still much more to come, including Marty is back with Media Matters and the Work News of the Week.
1: Thank you so much. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah,
0: yeah. Reality yeah. Check yeah. Radio.
1: Radio.